0: Well, it really is such a blessing, a joy to be with Midtown Baptist. We've prayed for you often, and uh, it's a privilege to worship with you. In fact, my wife and I have you on our hit list to worship with. She wasn't able to join me today, but in the Lord's uh, later on Sunday afternoon, as of two weeks ago, well, today, three weeks ago. And so we've got a number of churches on our hit list that we want to join and worship with on Sunday morning while we're being nomadic uh, on Sunday afternoon. But it really is a blessing. We have prayed for you often, just like your pastor prayed for a sister church, Mosaic, who we also love and have benefited from. We too pray for other congregations, and you are on the regular rotation, so it's really a joy to be here. I've also benefited from friendships with your pastors, uh, with John and Josh in particular, and uh, my life is better. My walk with Jesus, my love for the Savior is greater because of their investment in me, so it's a true joy to be with you and I just want to acknowledge something that's obvious. If you've been here many times, um, I'm thankful to join you. If you're a first-time guest, I'm one of you and I want to say to those first-timers like me, they're weird. We're from the moon. We do stuff that nobody else does when they get together. So I just want to say to you first-timers, I love, love, love that. I love it. I don't know if you're like easily distracted And that's a problem for you. Loves that. Uh, Our local church is like yours. We're new-ish in in the city. Um, And we've been outnumbered by our kids from day one. And we hear that a lot. The only difference between Midtown and us on Sundays is we just put them, like, in here. And so it's even harder. So uh, that's a huge blessing, and it really is a joy for me to be with you. As John prayed, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1. I invite you to that place No book of the Bible has done more surgery on my soul than the book of Hebrews. Those 13 chapters have become some of my dearest friends. Uh, They're the place that the Lord most often draws my heart back to when I need a fresh word from the Lord or a fresh sight of Christ. 2008, our church gave me a two-month sabbatical in preparation to preach through Hebrews, and I thought it'd probably be a good idea to read it, Uh, so I did that out loud at about this pace, at about this tone, two times every day for eight weeks, for two months. And so over the course of that time, just like you would be able to do, uh, there's a little bit of a legendary tale that I've heard a few times about this, but you would be able to do this. It's not um, untrue to say I accidentally memorized the book of Hebrews. (laughs) I didn't set out to do it. You could do it. Uh, Week three... I started to notice, okay, I could tell you the one before it, week seven, I could tell you the chapter that it was in, by week eight, you got it, and not only are you reading it twice a day, but inevitably, it just comes to mind all throughout the day, and you find yourself dancing under the light of some of these amazing revelations of Christ to us, so it became a dear friend to me, it also became a mirror and a light, Uh, Hebrews has done a lot of surgery on my soul. No book of the Bible, I don't think, has shown me more of my Christlessness and my sin, and I don't think any book has shown me more of his light and his grace and his love for sinners. So after that sabbatical, I commenced to bludgeon our church with seven years of preaching through Hebrews, and I'm prepared to give you all of it right now. It was really a joy. Uh, our series was titled, Looking Unto Jesus. That comes straight out of chapter 12, where we won't be primarily today. But that's really the, the message of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Christ. Your heart has eyeballs. Paul even said of the church at Ephesus, I think true of every church, Midtown Baptist Church. Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your, singular, heart, whole church, the eyes of your heart... Would be opened, enlightened. You have eyes in you. God's put them and you will become like what you behold. You can't break that rule. You will become like what you behold. And the book of Hebrews is an extended, protracted expose of the... And that's what it's all about. That's what I want us to fix our attention on today. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, It is, I think, the key text. There are three paragraphs in the whole book that are almost identical to the first three verses of Hebrews, and they contain the whole epistle in a few phrases. So we'll let Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, be our primary text for today. It really is the primary text of the whole book, you could say. So I invite you to listen to hear the word of the living God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, so may God's spirit open our minds and hearts to receive. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's keep reading. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help one more time? Oh, Father, we have a few moments here to fix our mind's attention, our heart's affection on the one in whom you see the perfect reflection of all your glory. So we ask that you would just enable us now by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to see in Jesus what you see. Save us from a Jesus of our own imagination. Forgive us for every belittling, deficient thought we've had about you and reorient us to who the second person of the Trinity, our Redeemer is. Show us him in these few moments together and cause our hearts to leap into his arms by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Hebrews is about Jesus. Uh, You could get your Sunday school answer right. Just say, Jesus, yes. It was a suffering church. We know that some of the people who were part of that church had been put in jail for their faith chapter 10 straight up says that, and it also tells us that the other members of the church who weren't imprisoned for their faith went to visit their friends in prison. It's a good thing to do. Uh, The challenge was, while they were at, it outed them as Christians also. So, when they went home after visitation hours at, at the jailhouse, they noticed smoke rising from the smoldering embers of their home it says their property was plundered so they lost all their stuff but hebrews says they actually joyfully accepted the plundering of their property knowing that they have for themselves a better possession and a lasting one it's like yay our house got burned down for jesus all right so it's a suffering church it's a local church. We know that. This letter is written to a local church. It says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, obey your leaders. It, it can't be obeyed outside the context of what you're doing right now. Okay? It's written to a little church like this that's suffering. They're Hebrews, that is, Israelites. They're, they're from the nation of, of Israel. They're Hebrews, but they're completed Jews. They have trusted in the risen Jesus as the long awaited Messiah that God promised to send. So they're Christians. They're being tempted. Tempted to what? Half Christianity, (laughs) just like all of us. Total fidelity to him because that really costs a lot. But how about get to heaven when I die, Jesus, just not so faithful to him on this side of eternity so it'll be a little less painful on the journey. What would you say to your friend whose house got burned down yesterday? For following Christ. Hebrews is God's answer. It might sound super spiritual, but fix your eyes on Jesus is actually what you need when life strikes and when all hell breaks loose, and it's really hard. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 is totally that. Uh, that's exactly what God would say to a people, he would say, look at the unparalleled superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a little outline of Hebrews that you may have seen before. It's just basically Jesus is better. So pick whatever you want. Yes, he's better than that. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the whole priesthood because he's better than Aaron. He's a better sacrifice. He's just better. That's how Hebrews works. And what I wanted to do is... I've asked, but I want to try to help us as we trust God to do it. If a diamond is hewn out of the quarry and it's a rock of the most precious quality, it's got everything in it that my wife wanted on the setting in her ring. It just didn't look like that. The book of Hebrews takes the diamond of Christ from the most exquisitely skilled craftsman and it's as if God cuts the diamond, holds him out in front of you and says, look at this facet of his glory and then turns. Look at this facet and turns. Look again, turn. That's what Hebrews is and just to prove the point, chapter one is only 14 verses long Two of those verses have no descriptions of Jesus. The other 12 verses have 33 separate descriptions of Jesus. The book opens with 33. Look at this aspect of his glory. Now look at this facet of his glory. Now look at this facet. The first eight of those descriptions come from the vantage point of the human author. He is, he is, he is. The next 25 of those descriptions, starting in verse 5, come from the vantage point of God the Father. It's as if he took the quill out of the hand of the human author and he started, do you see him that way? Do you see him this way? 25 times. Now, I would love to tell you all of those, but I'm going to try to look at the first eight with you and especially pick out one of them. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, good Baptist preaching, we'll alliterate it, his person, his priesthood, his power, okay? So here we go, verses 1 to 3. Christ Jesus, look at his person. The reason he can save you is because of who he is. It would do you no good if Jordan Thomas dies for your sins. I can't save you. He can. It's because of who he is. That's the way the book of Hebrews opens. You must see the exalted substance of Jesus to understand anything about his saving efficacy and power. Look at the majestically exalted Jesus in verse 2. It says in these last days God has spoken to us in his son by his son. That's contrasted to verse 1. Verse 1 says verse 2 says but he outdid himself. He gave you the quintessentially perfect revelation of himself. He showed you the greatest possible expose of himself by giving this. He gave you his son. Now, just verse one, really quick. He he spoke in what ways? How often? Many portions, many ways. To whom? Our fathers. By whom? The prophets. That's basically saying God's not hiding from you. I feel like that a lot. I feel like the more I try to track him down, It's like he's hiding behind a corner, and when I make my way to the edge, he runs and hides behind another corner, and I can't quite get him. He's elusive. You know that's a lie from Satan? God wants you to know him more than you want to know him. Many portions, many ways. I'm a dad of six kids, and uh, two, 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 girls, boys, girls. When the oldest two, now college students at U of M, were, were smaller, their favorite game was hide and seek. And we played it a lot. I live in a house that's 170 years old, uh, pre-Civil War, downtown Memphis. Pretty cool. The guy who restored it knew what he was doing. Because it's so old, it's got a lot of nooks and crannies, a lot of hiding spots. It's also got a ton of problems, like the commode that wouldn't stop running this morning that made me late to get to your church. But uh, it's got a lot of little nooks and crannies and crawl space and blah, blah, blah. Well, When we play hide and seek, I hide. Like when they were little, they're not finding me right? I'm inside the crawl space with the little like fake, it looks like that thing, right? You don't know it's a door if you're two, right? But that's a door up there. So I hide from them, but that's not their favorite part of the game. When I go hide and I'm in the dark cavern someplace, pretty soon I hear the pitter-patter of their feet going down to their bedroom and the laughter of their voices while they're playing something else, And I'm stuck, right? So I come out and I say, I thought we were playing a game. Well, the reason I hide first is because if I hide second, we never get to round two. So if I want to hide, it's hiding. That's actually a little bit of a misnomer. So I do the dad thing. Okay, let's go play another round. And the way we do it at our house is in our uh, family room, there's a sofa here, sofa here. And so the way we do it is we put our face in this one and cover it with pillows and we count to 20. And then we do the ready or not, ready or not, here I come. Well, in round two, when my girls were small, oftentimes when I counted and they hid, I would, ready or not, here I come, I would turn around and they're on this sofa with their head buried. (laughs) Right? Because they think if they can't see me, I can't see them. So I do the dad thing. What's the dad thing? Where's Taylor? I can't find her. Any- Where is Caitlin? You're like looking behind the lamppost. You're like, ah, oh, she's not over here. You're anywhere. What do they do after about two or three of those? They jump out. Here I am. Why? That's their favorite part of the game. The exhilaration of being, f- God said, here I am. Here I am not just a few times in a few places, many portions, many ways to our fathers in the prophets. And in these last days, he jumped out at you. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen the father. He's the greatest possible revelation of God. If your jaw doesn't drop when you see Jesus of Nazareth, take a longer look. When the queen of Sheba went before Solomon, 2 Chronicles said, her heart skipped a beat. Her breath was taken away. Because she said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. She said, behold, the half was not told to me. You know why people aren't impressed with Jesus? They've heard about him, but they haven't seen him through the eye of faith. So he's the definitive revelation of God. More could be said on that. But in his glorious person, the second description of Jesus is also in verse 2. He's the heir, H-E-I-R, the inheritor of everything. It all belongs to him including you. Now you can run all you want. You can try to hide all you want. At the end of the day, you're owned. You belong to him. You don't need special powers of interpretation to figure this out. God the Father handed him everything. When he got up from the dead, he told his 11 closest friends, Judas had already hung himself, all authority, heaven and on earth. It's right here in the palm of this glorified, pierced hand. I own it all. He's the inheritor of everything. He's the king of the universe. One day, really soon. It sounds like make believe and fairy tale to a lot of people. Sci-fi. One day, really soon. I promise you, on the authority of God's word, every single living creature will affirm, "Kyrios Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord." That's verse two. Have you looked at that facet of of the diamond of his beauty? So he's the definitive voice of God. He's the inheritor of everything. But that's actually the fruit of a deeper root. Why does it all belong to him? Well, the author of Hebrews, I think, if he were preaching at Midtown Baptist Day, would say, duh, because he made it all. Do you see that? His inheritance is the rightful fruit of the ground of his creative genius. It says, through whom he the father made your you may say world universe ages it's aeons it's everything all the stuff that fits in all god's invention called time he's timeless he's existed for eternity smoke will come out of your ears if you try to think about that long and inside of his little invention called time and all the stuff that fits in that all the matter all the time all the space i think he made that too He made it all. Genesis one one is true. You can all quote it. You grew up. In God created the heavens and the earth. That is true. That is true. It's just not all the Bible has to say about God's creative expertise. You continue to read the pages of Scripture, and as you all have seen in the Gospel of John, I've listened to a good number of your sermons here and have profited greatly from them. As you've seen in the Gospel of John. Everything that has come into being has come into being through Jesus. And nothing came into being apart from him or Colossians 1. He made it all whether it's visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, the angels in heaven. As you sit in your really nice-looking white folding chairs. The angels in heaven are doing something. What are they doing right now? What were they doing last night when you were asleep? Revelation 4:11. They are ceaselessly saying to the enthroned, risen king of the universe, honor and power for you created everything. That's Jesus. Why does he own everything? Because he made it. Now, this may make your kind of mind flip inside out, but I want you to think about it specifically. Yes, he king. That's not bad news. That's incredibly good news. He made everything, but if you just want, like, smoke to come out of your ears, think about this. He made his own mom. He, he's dependent. We sang uh, in Christ alone, uh, fullness of God and helpless babe. She's holding the one who's holding her. He made her. He's the creator of everything. That's the third description of Jesus. It's in verse 2. The fourth description is, oh, my, my, my. Verse 3, the radiance of God's glory. He beams out everything that is glorious about God. He radiates the glory of God. Have you looked at this facet of the diamond of his beauty? Mount of transfiguration, through the eye of faith, Shekinah glory that causes holy angels to cover their holy faces in the presence of his holiness because he's categorically different. He's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy of the glory of God. This is an outward. I like the old, old English renderings of this phrase. He's the effulgence of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature, Colossians would tell us. He is the manifestation of the glory of God. Why do people not see Jesus as the epitome of the representation of the glory of God? Why don't they see glory radiating from Jesus? It's pretty sobering to answer that question. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you the answer. But because I do, pastors love you, we're just going to keep telling you the answer. If you do not see Jesus of Nazareth as the storehouse of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4 tells you why. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is satanic deception. It absolutely is. And when by his grace he rips the scales from your eyes, you see what Saul of Tarsus saw. You see light, you see glory. But just like inheritance was the fruit of being creator, he owns it all because he made it all. Radiating the glory of God is actually the fruit of something deeper. Do you see it? It's the fifth description. Not only does he radiate the glory of God, That is the byproduct of something deeper. He is the exact representation, representation of the nature of God. That's inward. He possesses God's character, therefore he shines God's glory. Have you looked at at this facet of his glory, the exact representation of the nature of God? He possesses divinity. He is God. This is inward, this is reality, this is who he is. Colossians would say, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All of God in him. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He possesses divinity. He's God. Again, a lot of people think, yeah, you know, that's your one way uh, to heaven, but there's two or ten or, you know, ten thousand more. One thing we're going to see in just a moment that's shockingly true to a pluralistic world and hearts that are idol factories like mine and yours. One thing we're going to see in just a moment. If there would have been another way for God to become your friend and not violate his integrity, that's the hardest question in the universe. It's not philosophical, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? You want to know a really hard question? How does he still get to be God and be my friend? That's a big problem. How does it not tarnish his character? How does it not defile his holiness? Does he compromise who he is to accept me in his presence? The Bible's one answer is there's not two, ten, or ten thousand ways. And if there was another way, I assure you, God would have come up with another alternative than sending heaven's favorite to be mutilated for your crimes against him. He possesses all divinity. He's God. The sixth description of Jesus is also in verse 3. He's the sustainer of the cosmos by his spoken word. Do you see it there? He upholds all things by the word of his power. This is, I mentioned, his spoken word. It's a, a Greek word, Raymon, not logos. Logos is beautiful. It's a, it's a, it's a word of, of description of Jesus. But this is just, he tells it to stay put. And it does. I mean, the reason you don't spontaneously combust or implode or explode, I don't know which way it would be. I just know that you're here right now and you're all held together. You look great. But I also know the underlying foundational reason. We know for a fact that Isaiah chapter 40 is about Jesus. The reason we know that is because it says in the New Testament the first three verses are about John the Baptist, and it cites those verses saying he's a forerunner to tell you about the Savior. So the rest of the verses are about that Savior that John the Baptist tells you about. One of the descriptions of Jesus in Isaiah 40 is absolutely staggering. Now, when my kids were little, we play hide-and-seek, but we also sang all the little tunes that you sang, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. You know they're not so little, right? The big ball of fire that's making it daytime right now is a million times bigger than the ball of dirt on which you now sit. That big ball of fire is tiny in comparison to all the Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Stars you see at night. That sun would fit inside those stars, often millions of times. As Jesus calls them all by name, and because of the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. He sustains everything by the word of his power. Have you looked at that facet of person? I'd love to say more, but that's not the best part of the really, really good stuff that's in here the next two parts each have one phrase the second is his priesthood the third is his power so his person we've looked at six descriptions priesthood we'll look at one it's also in verse three when he made purification of sins the most important word in chapter one is two letters long it's a pronoun h e he he Who is the He? That's the most significant word in the whole chapter. The He is the person I've just been describing to you. When this glorious person made purification for our sins, that's speaking of his priesthood. The reason this doesn't penetrate us as it ought is because we're stupid. Biblically speaking, There's never been a greater sinner than you or me. Many people, like we heard in our pastoral prayer today, God have mercy on this land that's under evident judgment. Many people have exposed their depravity more than you and me. They've acted more sinfully. But there is no fundamental difference between you and any person at 201 Poplar. You are totally depraved. He made purification for our sins. Now, I'm married, no disrespect, to the most amazing person on the planet. Tracy has often been described by other people This is just a smattering of things I've heard about her from other people. Young, old, male, female, lost, saved, sweet, motherly, soft-spoken, tender-hearted, totally even-killed. I'm this. Tracy's just this. I mentioned we have six kids. When I say motherly, I mean fullest possible expression of that word. She's a phenomenal mom. She's incredibly godly. I have walked toward her, even God-haters who seek her out. She's so approachable. She's easy to talk to. So sometimes when we're on a special date night and I have her in the car beside me and we're on our way to McDonald's, (laughs) I say to her, Tracy, I've said this to her before. I just want you to know that you're the most wretched, miserable, ever step foot on the face of God's plan, and if God were to remove his hand from underneath your life, you would plummet into the lowest corner of the devil's hell for 10 trillion eternities, and God would be, you didn't expect me to say that, did you? This is what I want you to hear. In our world, in our day, in our little corner of the world needs a fresh dose of the reality of what sin is. God doesn't save anybody because they're sweet and motherly and soft-spoken and tender and approachable and easy to get along with. You are a monster of iniquity. You have put your fist in God's face. You have committed mutiny against the king of glory. You have tried to dethrone God. You have put your grubby foot in his chest. You could sit there. Sin is self-deification. Guess who paid for your crime? He did it. He got off of heaven's throne. Peter says that the angels are tiptoes and they try to look into the things of our redemption because from the time they were created, the holy angels that never sin. They've existed wholly in the presence of the Holy Christ. And when God carried out his eternal plan to dispatch heaven's favorite to come to this sin-torn world to pay for your crimes, it says the angels were stupefied. They couldn't believe it. Him, not Michael, not Gabriel, not me, him, he came to make purification for your sins. I gotta say something about his priesthood, purification. That's in the verse. That's the word God chose. It's the word from which we get the word catheter. It's an inside-out word. He did not cleanse your sin from way over there. He climbed his mighty self into your wretchedness. And from the inside out, he killed sin. He put death to death on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath for my iniquity against God. This is stupefying. This is amazing everything i've ever done to fall short of the glory of god meaning everything i've ever done to not. on top of that all the things i was supposed to have done that i never did i left them undone james says that is sin galatians says because of my sin and yours the king of glory became a curse for us. So all of what this means But I know enough to know that Romans chapter 8 definitely means that Jesus took divine damnation for my sin. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, here it comes. He condemned sin in the flesh. He damned my sin when Jesus died. I don't know all of what this means, but I do know that in six hours of time, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., go read the Gospels and you can do the chronology. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the cross of Calvary, the eternal, infinite Jesus took an eternity's worth of wrath for my sin. And he exhausted that cup. He drank it all. He made purification for sin. Sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love every song you guys sang this morning. I know you sing nothing but good ones because I know you're elders enough to know that they believe what Spurgeon said. Most people get the theology they believe from the songs that they sing. So I'm under no doubt. But I guarantee you, if you get Alzheimer's and you live to 90 and one of your pastors comes to your deathbed and starts to hum, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin, not in part, but the whole, you'll be able to finish the line, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. How did he do it? He canceled the, this is Colossians, not hymn writers. He canceled the record of debt against you. How did he do it? There's just like parchment, this scroll, all your debt. How did he cancel it? Colossians says he nailed it to the cross. Pop quiz. Did he nail a piece of paper to a piece of wood outside Jerusalem? No. He nailed his son to that cross. All your debt written in his wounds so that you could sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's good theology. That's verse 3. I'm jumping off a thousand-foot cliff into the arms of the mighty Jesus. I'm not trusting how good I flap my arms to fly. I'm not trusting how far I jump not to splatter on the bottom. I'm jumping into the arms of Jesus. If he doesn't catch me, I have no other hope. That's what faith is. And Hebrews can't let this theme go, of his priesthood. It is the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. Look at the facet of the glory of Christ called his priesthood. Now I told you I'd love to preach it all to you. But let me just give you a taste, and then you just go read the book of Hebrews sometime between now, end of the year, be a great Advent reading, 13 chapters, you can do it in about an hour, his priesthood. Chapter 8 says the main point, literally, I love when God puts black ink on white paper, it's like, man, I'm having a hard time kind of following what's going on here, and then he says in chapter 8, the main point of what has been said is this, like, ah, what's that? We have such a high priest. That's the point. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. This incomparable Jesus. This precious, super exalted, eternal creator, limitless, immutable. I'm getting all this straight out of Hebrews. Enthroned. Greater than the angels and Moses, greater than the law, the priest, and all the priests come back, the real tabernacle, the lamb offering on God's altar in the heavens, this precious Jesus is your high priest. That's the point of chapter 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, and 12. I want to say something to you before we move to our final consideration. I'll try to start it now, if I forget to finish it in a moment, somebody please remind me, we'll do class participation. I wanna ask you a question, what's gonna be different between you right now and you 10 trillion eternities from now? What's the difference gonna be between what you are right now and what you will be then? That's our last point, his power. If I forget to answer that question in all seriousness, somebody please raise their hand. Verse 3, last consideration, this is his power. We've looked at his person, we've looked at his priesthood. Now let's look at his power. Verse 3, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now I want you to get this, I want you to see this. This is a facet of the glory of your Redeemer. Our atoning sacrifice is, try to envision, seated on heaven's throne beside the majesty in the heavens. Now, have you thought about what that means for us? Look, we sing, I don't know if we've sang all the songs we, at our congregation that you sang today, well, almost all of them for sure we sang, and especially loved hearing you all sing In Christ Alone, and I've often wondered why we sing it in an Acts 8 way instead of a Hebrews 1 way. And I don't know all the copyright infringements of changing lyrics, but we sang something, something, something about standing before the throne, referring to Jesus. That's Acts 8. I'm not mad about it. Most of the portraits you get of the Redeemer, I think all of them except for one, in the entire New Testament after his ascension, his posture is not up, it's down. He's seated seated at the right hand of the majesty on high i want to remind you that the original audience needed some serious encouragement they needed some real practical right here right now how do i persevere in the faith they were suffering greatly i told you about that they were tempted sorely to trade i got when i die you guys be serious about all that holiness stuff this is how the christian life works how if you look to Jesus, you will be increasingly transformed by the Holy Spirit into his image because you become like what you behold. This is how Christianity works. This is how you persevere. The you're, In fact, you're already proving that rule. If you're drunk, intoxicated with social media feeds, you will begin to sound like them. Whatever one is your favorite, that's what you will begin to replicate. That's how your mind will think because you become like what you behold. Where is Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. I promise I'm about to close. I know they're about to form a coup, uh, the kids. So, Why is this significant? Why would I say the point is his power? Many of you know this. It would serve us all to refresh on it. Maybe you haven't heard this. Not one priest in the entire Old Testament ever sat down. You will search in vain for one verse in the Old Testament of a high priest sitting down. There is no such verse. That's because, as Hebrews 7 will make explicit, their work was never finished. It is a bold statement by the Holy Spirit in the opening paragraph of the majesty to say his work is done. His sacrifice is accepted in full. Your sin is paid for in full. He has finished the work. I used to say, I think this is wrong. I used to say it a lot. Jesus died under the wrath of God for our sins. The reason I don't say that anymore, try not to, is because when Jesus was on the cross, that's the only time he referred to God as God. Every other time he referred to him as Father. But on the cross, he said two times, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says it twice, which I think is an expose of him trusting God by faith, even when he could not find his face in his favor. The cry of dereliction, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a man under immense suffering, more so than the whole history of humanity cumulatively combined, trusting God you are my God but that's not the last thing he said before he died he returned to father father into your hands I commit my spirit I think he finished the priestly sacrifice God's just judgment for my sin and yours then returned to unbroken fellowship with the father which he now enjoys He's seated at the right hand of the Majesty on High. Let me nerd out on you for just a minute. Megalasunes in upselois. That's verse three. He sat down next to the super exalted, regal king who occupies the throne of heaven. Where did he sit? Right next to him. Parallel, tantamount. Your Redeemer is as kingly exalted as he could have said, God, do you know the Holy Spirit's not trying to make his book longer? He's not just like adding words for space filler so you'll be impressed with how big his book is. Why didn't he say he sat down next to God? That would have been true. He's trying to help you see that the king of glory is seated on heaven's throne in parallel dignity to the megalosunes in in upse The biggest word he could get out of his heart The majesty in the heavens is the one that your Savior is seated beside. Now back to the question. What's the difference between you today and you 10 trillion eternities from now? I'm speaking to those of you who are in Christ. You're going to be glorified then. You're not glorified now. You will not only not sin, you will not have the capacity to sin. You will have an unfettered, enjoyment of all that God is for you in Christ increasingly for eternity you will never find the edges of his immense being you will swim in the ocean of his infinitude of love for you now there's a lot of differences oh friends I came this morning to say this sentence to you but you will not be more justified you will not be more accepted. You will not be more approved 10 trillion eternities from now than you are right now if Christ is all your hope. The man who is seated at God's right hand is the definition of how accepted and approved you are in his presence forever. You will never improve upon that. And if you want me to put that in less preachy ways, I'm glad you asked. There's not one thing you can do to make God like you more. And if you want the other side of that coin, it is equally true. There is not one thing you can do to make him like you less. Your acceptance before the Father is not dependent on your righteousness or lack thereof. It's whether or not you have the imputation of the righteousness of his son by faith. If all your hope is in the risen Jesus who made purification for your sins, who is right now seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, then God is assuring you on the basis of Hebrews that 10 bajillion eternities from now, you will forever be as accepted and as approved in his presence as your redeemer in whom you hope. Our application is simple. Somebody got onto me and our church often asked me, for seven years I had one application. Look, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the application of Hebrews. Now there's middle of chapter 10 to the end of chapter 13, there's a bunch of applications marriage, money, church membership, a lot of applications. But if you do all those without fixing your eyes on Jesus, you fail the application is look so the help i got was a pastor friend older seasoned saint said hey i just want to remind you jordan that fix your eyes on jesus look at him stare at his glory see the particular facets of his brilliance and beauty that god has made known to you as he turns the diamond of his perfections so look just like the church of hebrews if you're suffering if you've experienced loss, if you're tempted to give up on the faith, look. And then the two ways you do that, I would say Hebrews smashes them down into these two ways. Lean into your local church. This is one sermon, Hebrews chapter 13 says that. It's one sermon written to one church. If you're not connected to the body of Christ, you can't get all the sweetness and goodness of what's contained in these letters written to churches about Christ. So lean into your local church. Let people know you. Know them. Help point each other to Christ. Help each other look, on, look to Jesus. So lean into your local church. That's a good way to look to Christ. And then finally, lay aside everything that distracts you, every sin and every encumbrance that slows you down in your pursuit of Christ, be willing to let it go, not because God is a cosmic killjoy trying to make your life miserable, but because you would actually be more satisfied if you would drink more deeply of the fullness of your Savior. God wants you to have joy, and he can give it to you by letting go of the things that are slowing you down in your pursuit of Christ, which is what chapter 12 says. So you know how Paul says in his writings like Philippians, finally, 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 this is my last finally. All right, and then I'll, I'll stop. Jesus discipled some people. You know their names. Those people discipled people. One of Jesus' disciples, John, who wrote four letters of the New Testament, John, first, second, third John, Revelation. I guess that's more than four. He discipled a guy named Ignatius. Ignatius wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus the same Ephesians that's in your Bible, and in Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch's letter to the Ephesian church, he said, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Man, that has done a number on me. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. If that sounds too super spiritual, I just want to remind you, that's the way that people who were discipled by people that Jesus discipled, taught. Apart from Christ is a really good answer. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're gonna sing a chorus that you all know so well. Let's sing it like we're gonna see him tomorrow. Father, I ask that you would be glorified in our hearts and with our voices as we sing all glory be to Christ. In Jesus' name.